Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is. I'm Peter Whittle. Now, my guest this week is one of our best known and most successful historians, Dominic Sambrook, who you might know from his numerous appearances on television where he presents documentaries, uh, is the author of numerous history books. Uh, perhaps best known um, is his huge history of Britain in the post-war period, which covers politics, economics and culture. Uh, the most recent one, which came out, uh, it's now in paperback, uh, is Who Dares Wins, which covers the period from 1979 to 1982, ends with the Falkland, Falklands Wars. Uh, he also writes for the Sunday Times uh, and for the Daily Mail. Thank you very much for joining us, Dominic. It's a pleasure. Thank you. I'm feeling very underdressed now I see <laughs> no, uh, how dapper you that. are. They all say <laughs> that. <laughs> um, Dominic, I, I want to talk a bit about your books, but first of all, um, you wrote a very interesting piece recently about the decline of labour. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you, we, this will be going out uh, later on this week. Uh, there is the Hartlepool by-election. And this, do you think this is a significant moment or could be for labour? I think so, because I think you would expect... You know, the government is more than a year into its term. It's been managing a pandemic. You would expect this to be a seat that Labour should win. I mean, it's their own seat, basically. They used to have very healthy majorities in Hartlepool. It's the, the sort of classic northern heartland seat that Labour always used to rely on. And if they don't win it, or if they indeed... I mean, I think they probably will win it. But I think they'll win it only very, very narrowly if they do. And... You know, that's an ominous result, I think, for Labour, because all this stuff about the sort of red wall seats, which you all know, Peter, um, and about the sort of inroads of the Brexit party and before that UKIP made into Labour's vote and that now Boris Johnson has made, there's always this assumption, you know, how the talk is always how will Labour win it back? Mm. And there's always this sort of assumption that at some point they will win that, that these voters can be reconverted. And the danger for Labour, um, and I think you might see this in Hartlepool, is that actually the 2019 election was not an anomaly, but was the beginning of something. A bit. Right. The analogy I would give would be when the Republican Party started winning the South in America, which had always previously been Democratic. And basically people, you know, it never went back. Mm. And the danger for Labour, I think, is that they end up trapped between two... They've always had this tension, I think, Peter, between the sort of middle-class idealists and often quite small-c conservative working-class voters. Mm. And I think that tension is becoming increasingly unmanageable as voters tend to make up their minds on issues of identity and culture and so on. And obviously Brexit was a huge part of that. Mm. And I think for Starmer, if he doesn't you know, win comfortably in Hartlepool, that looks pretty ominous mm. for the 2024 election. The, uh, in your books, obviously, you've, you've charted the post-war political scene and... I mean, the, the, if you like, the, the genesis of these problems was quite a long time ago, wasn't it, for Labour, really? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think if you, you're absolutely right that, you know, I've been writing about um, Britain since the 50s, really. And even as early as about ni as 1968, actually, let's take 1968. So in 1968, Enoch Powell made his famous, you know, the speech that we remember as the Rivers of Blood speech. And in his diaries at the time, the Labour cabinet minister, Richard Crossman, said, you know, this is really a problem for us because a lot of our voters agree with him. And even at that point, so, you know, very early on, there was this sense of an emerging tension 
between the kind of people who basically ran the Labour Party and the kind of people that they expected to turn out every five years to vote for it. And I think that has, you know, it's, it's been getting worse over mm. time. Mm. And the other problem, of course, for Labour is it's a Victorian political party mm. that's rooted, I mean, it's very name, you know, the Labour Party is kind of rooted in this world that basically is gone. Mm. I mean, you'll know as well as I do that um, that sort of world of, you know, everybody lived in back-to-backs, they worked in their local factory, they went to their local football club on a Saturday, They there was a pub at one end of the street and a kind of Methodist chapel at the other. I mean, that world has gone. Mm. And, and, and Labour has struggled, I think, to adjust to a world in which people um, see themselves much more as individual consumers yes. than a sort of class-bound in the, in the way that they were in the 1930s or something. What do you think the chances are, Dominic, of Labour sort of even giving up the pretense of being a working-class party, for the reasons you said, and becoming a radical middle-class party? Well, that might seem an obvious way to go. So you look at the Greens in Germany... Yeah. Um, Labour could try to evolve into a party like that or a party like the Democrats in the United States. The problem, though, is that, you know, they are the second party in the first past the post system. So that would mean giving up on an awful lot of seats. I mean, hundreds of seats, basically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what sane leader of the opposition writes off, you know, 150 yes. um, otherwise, you know, hopefully reliable seats and gambles that they can win lots of, you know, leafy, suburban, southern English seats. Um, I think that would be incredibly reckless. I mean, the danger is that you, you just win neither. Yes. Um, so I think in a way the, the electoral system might... The danger for Labour, actually, is the electoral system will trap them as a zombie party. Mm. They'll always finish second. Mm. You know, they'll never... Even in 2019 under Jeremy Corbyn, I mean, they won a lot of seats. Mm. Mm. Um, not enough... But they still won, you know, more than 200 seats. Mm. So, the, I mean, that's right, isn't it? They won about 200 seats. I yes. can't remember exactly how many. Um, 202, I think, yes. Yeah. So they, the danger is, you know, if, that, if you assume that, that that's roughly the floor and that the ceiling could be, you know, 280 or something, that they just end up permanently... Mm. Uh, trapped mm. around that and, and that perhaps over time they are eroded mm. um, by the Tories mm. uh, and that they turn into a sort of I mean you know could they make it as a kind of superior version of the Lib Dems mm. I don't know um, the, I think the danger they have now is of course the Tories are slightly stealing their clothes yes. you know if you're yes. if you want a party that's leveling up to use Boris's jargon and to you know doling out the cash and, and all that sort of stuff why would you choose Labour when you've got one in government as it is? Yes, yes. You mentioned there about that way of life going, you know, working class back-to-back, pub on the corner. And, of course, football uh, played a big part in that, has played a big part. And I, you wrote a... I mean, I don't mean to be... Well, I'm about to be ingratiating, but I, you... Oh, great, good. <laughs> <laughs> you wrote a beautiful piece, I thought, in Unheard recently about this Super League thing that basically rose up hugely and has suddenly gone as quickly. Um, yeah. But, and about the effect this would have. And, but you were writing about football as being a faith and a part, a cultural, of such cultural importance. Were you surprised that there was such a reaction to, to that deal when it came up? Were you surprised at the hostility? 
No, not really, because I think actually what's happened, it's funny, I was only talking to somebody the other day about this, about how so many of these other working class institutions have died. And that means that football's actually acquired even more importance mm. because it really is the only one mm. of those things left, mm. actually. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of people f- feel that it's now, you know, if you live in, in Bolton or Bury or, you know, or, or, or Wolverhampton, the team I support, um, the the football team is really the only local institution left that feels distinctive and of which you can be proud and that binds people in the kind of area together and so I think a lot of people feel that you know if that if that league had happened um almost certainly the 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 remaining teams the rest of the football league would have been kind of eviscerated because the money would have followed the super league they wouldn't have got some the tv deals would have collapsed and they would have you know been in real trouble as has already happened in Bury actually where their team went out of business and I think a lot of people just sort of felt, you know, we will lose something quite precious. And it's yeah. not just about the game. It's about an institution that has deep historic roots that meant mm-hmm. something to my parents and to my grandparents and to to sort of the people who lived in this place before us. Mm-hmm. And that if we lose that, then we're left with nothing mm-hmm. because our city centre or our town centres have been hollowed out. Um you know, talent and and money has all flowed to London, and that lots of parts of the country people feel abandoned, and they feel they feel sort of undervalued. I think that's a huge part of it. They feel kind of culturally neglected, and and actually having that team, you know, if you live in, I mean, I despise West Bromwich Albion, but if you live in West Bromwich, you know, having a Premier League team or at least a yo-yo club, um, it's something that you can genuinely be proud. Of. It's the one thing for which your area is known. And that gives it kind of meaning to a lot of people. And I think that's actually, it is a bit of a, a faith in the sense it's a weekly ritual. Um, and it's replaced the rituals of old. And without it, I think people would feel adrift, kind of rudderless and abandoned. Yes, I mean, I think that you, you put it very nicely in this article. I've got to, I'm going to quote you back at yourself here. But uh, uh, yes, you said saying that football clubs are just businesses is like saying the medieval church was just a landowner. Um, But the thing is, is in in a way, you know, in a way, isn't that sort of the people who just see it as a business, um, you know, they would be, if you like, the free marketeers, would they not? They they would be the people who see the the, you know, the everything is a balance sheet, wouldn't they? Yes, they would. Exactly. I mean, I don't think um, uh, there's always this uh, belief that sort of conservative-minded people do see life purely as a balance sheet. Mm. I mean, this is the sort of accusation that you often get from sort of left liberalish people. But actually, the people who were most in favour of the Super League were sort of economics writers for the New Yorker, yeah. who, you know, kind of quite woke people, yes. who, who you know, see nothing wrong with clubs being unmoored from their traditional mm. communities. I mean, to them, the traditional communities are the problem, mm. not the not the sort of solution. So, so yes, I, I, I think there is... The interesting thing is that it took football to do this, nothing else. So our high streets have been kind of hollowed out. Everybody shops at, at Amazon. Um, in other walks of life, as it were, globalisation has prevailed. But football, precisely because of what you said, there's it's kind of a religious faith mm. element to it mm. because it, it sort of tugs at people's hearts and minds. This was the one thing that millions of people were just determined to draw a line in the sand and say, no, you won't. You know, you won't come for our game. And I think it's really interesting um, that it was football, something that's really ultimately most people know deep down is is a kind of trivial thing. 
that it but it but it mattered and if people think it matters it matters Um, and that's what's so interesting about it exactly in fact in in your book who dares wins you know the the latest in your uh series about british british history i wasn't it during this period that football was at its lowest ebb uh, around yeah, the early, early 80s. So it sort of came back, didn't it? Was it in the 90s, I guess? Yes, it was. It was um, it's a really interesting story. So in the 1980s, you would, I think, reasonably have assumed that football would probably die or that it would become a, a, a mere hobby, a sort of antiquated hobby in some ways. Um, because attendances had been falling for 20 years, it, the stadiums were crumbling, they were disgraces. Obviously, the game's utterly overshadowed by hooligan violence. I mean, every Saturday, you know, mm. you, you go through the, the newspapers from the time, every single Saturday, there are reports of real trouble, sort of quite vicious trouble. And of course, when English teams went abroad, they exported the hooliganism, they took it with them. Mm. Um, there's an example I give in the book of Mrs. Thatcher goes to a European Council meeting in Italy in 1980, and it's when she's asking for our money back, if you remember, yeah. uh, for our budget rebate. And so she's sort of on the warpath, but it's quite early in her first term. So she's finding her way and she wants to make a good impression on all these European leaders. And she's there precisely the same time that the England football team are playing in the European Championships uh, in Rome. And she had, see- she had had a reception at Downing Street um, to see them off. And she had been photographed on the steps of number 10 and the step outside with... Um, Emlyn Hughes and Kevin Keegan kissing her. Um, So they were the sort of senior players. So she had slightly wrapped herself in the England team's flag. And they went and the hooligans behaved abysmally. Uh, The Italian police used tear gas to try and clear the hooligans, which then um, went onto the pitch. Uh, So the players had to come off in tears. uh, And then the game was resumed. You know, it was utterly, it was unbelievably humiliating for, for English football and of course, the cameras went to, I think she was in Venice and uh, she gives an interview in Venice and you can see that she's, you know, she's humiliated. It's incredibly embarrassing for her to come out of this meeting and have to basically apologise for her fans. Mm. And I think at that point, you know, in English football or football generally was a sort of, it was a disgrace. It was a disgrace on on the national kind of flag. Mm. And... um what changed it was obviously new money, um, globalisation, um, satellite television. Um, famously, England did quite well at the 1990 World Cup and Paul Gascoigne cried on TV. Mm. And lots of people got behind, you know, some middle class people got behind the game. Um, so it really is a kind of, you know, ugly duckling story. You wouldn't have expected at that point football to have to have revived. Yes, it's interesting you say there are middle, some middle pl- class people got um, got behind the game. That's how I remember in the 90s. It suddenly became sort of almost part of the middle class, uh, quite self-conscious lad culture. Do you, do yeah, you remember that absolutely. period? I remember it well, because I'm of that generation. So, right. you know, I went up to university in 1993 and uh, I was absolutely of that generation where the lad culture kind of mm. came in and the sort of slightly affected kind of yes. middle class enthusiasm for, for, for football I mean Tony Blair famously said remember Jackie watching Jackie Milburn play for Newcastle despite the fact that Jackie Milburn had retired before he was born um, <laughs> and um, um, yeah there was this sort of I mean that would have been that just simply didn't happen 
in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. You know, politicians didn't pretend to, 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 they didn't feel the need to like football because football hadn't been fashionable. Mm. And then it did, it absolutely did become fashionable mm. um, in the 90s. Um, and I think that's obviously once hooliganism had yes, been yeah. dealt with. Yeah. You said you went to up to uh, Sheffield. Was, you said Sheffield, I'm sorry. It was no. Uh, uh, I taught at Sheffield later on. I was at Oxford. You taught yeah. at Sheffield. But you, you started off, did you not, Dominic, as a specialist in American history? I, I mean, did. I did. Because, you know, you are the chronicler of uh, post-war Britain now. But uh, but I, I wonder, it, this is a fascinating time for American history, is it not? I mean, I would say depressing. But, um, you know, this is... I wonder what your thoughts on this were. It seems that, to me that America, which has always played a big part in my life anyway, um, has sort of actually entirely changed it's changed in its nature i mean do you think yeah. that that's the case i do think it's i think all the problems are quite deep rooted yeah. i mean they are, have historic roots and obviously you know the the legacy of slavery is a yeah. huge part of it um and obviously you things like the gun culture have always been you know have been there for as long as america has existed because it's a frontier society but there's no doubt that since let's say the 1980s or the 1990s Something has changed, mm. and I think America has lost its sense of self-confidence. Mm. I think it's mm. turned inwards, mm. um, and obviously part of that is because of Iraq and and so on. Um, but there has been a kind of hyperpolarization of American politics. Mm. Um, there's no common ground. Mm. Um, there is a sort of tolerance of violence generally and extremism, mm. and incredibly strident, aggressive kind of rhetoric and and behaviour that you just don't really see on this side of the Atlantic. And, and the sad thing is, actually, Peter, that it's hard to see how it would ever be resolved. Exactly. I mean, I was only yeah. talking um, last week to a BBC correspondent in America, who's lived in America for years, and he was saying, you know, in the time that he's been there, um, all these problems have kind of been there in embryo, but they have so clearly got worse. Mm. And the sense of any sort of national solidarity or common ground or self-confidence in the world just seems so out of reach. And I can't remember a time where America, you know, I grew up, as probably you did, America was the future. Yes. America was yeah. modern and it was mm. free and it was exciting. Mm. And I don't think young people think that anymore. I think they think of America as a basket case, which is incredibly sad. Yes, I think so. It was sort of one went, there was always, uh, you know, the feeling was, oh, well, if things got really bad, there's always America, you know, um, and that has entirely uh, disappeared. I, I would have thought one thing that's particularly fascinating, I'd love to hear what you think as an historian. There is this move now, uh, which is not that covered here, um, to entirely change the basis of American history in this 1619 project, yeah. which started off, I believe, as a New York Times initiative and is now being taught in schools. Yes. Can you explain what that actually is about? So, yes. So this is something I'm not um, a great in favour of, I have to say. So it's a project um, thought sort of dreamed up at the New York Times and they've exported it in, in this sort of evangelising way. And it's basically to recast the whole of American history, to say that we didn't start in 1776. It's not all about the founding fathers and breaking away from Britain. The starting point of American history, they argue, is when the first slaves are brought to America. And they basically try to recast the entirety of American history through the, the you know, it's all a story about slavery and race and racism. Mm. And um, what's so interesting about it is that all, particularly older 
sort of professional historians, academic historians, people who, you know, in, incredibly um, erudite, respected historians basically said, well, this is rubbish. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's too um, one note. Uh, yes, of course, slavery and race are part of the story, but they're not the whole story. You can't reduce the whole thing just to this sort of simplistic morality story. But they've been drowned out, basically, uh, and particularly by younger historians who sort of say, you know, shut up, granddad. Um, you know, you're part of the problem, not the solution. Mm. And this sort of it, it's sort of it's the historical reflection of this kind of woke movement. Mm. And it basically what I dislike about it. And it does. There are parallels in Britain, actually, sadly, um, is I think it tr- it reduces the complexity of history mm. to this sort of good versus evil, you know, black hats versus white hats, um, villains and victims uh, story where basically everything is about race and racism. Mm. And and if you, you know, you want to tell a different story, well, you're not, you know, you have difficulty in finding an audience. Yes. And the fact that they're they're pushing this into schools, I, I really find that very objectionable. Mm. I mean, I think schools should, you know, have a, a lot more, well... They shouldn't be dictated to um, to tell a very. They shouldn't be force fed a very politically partisan, but also kind of one note and slightly simplistic view of their own history, yeah. and and a history that's they've basically been turned into a colossal exercise in kind of self flagellation and kind of victimhood. Mm. Um, and, and yes, that is an it is an American story, but it's also increasingly becoming a, a British one as yeah, well. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I, 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 it's a sort of. And what I dislike about it personally is not it's not that I think these things shouldn't be discussed. Of course they should. They're, they're part of history. But I, I hate the um, the premise, which is often, oh, we've been lying. People have been lying to us about history and this elite conspiracy have been covering up the truth. And now we've found the truth, which is that there are goodies and baddies. I mean, I just think that's an incredibly simplistic and shallow way to think about the complexity of the past. I actually had uh, conversations last year during the whole um, statues thing with people very much along those lines, actually, you know, where they said, oh, well, now we know. I didn't know, said this person. I didn't know that Nelson, you know, was a slave trade. Of course, he's not, nothing like. Yeah. But somehow, and so therefore he should come down. Things like that. Yes. That, it's that level, is it not, of, as they say, a little learning is a dangerous thing, isn't it? It is exactly that because almost all the things that are the supposedly great revelatory discoveries, they have been known actually. They've mm. been known for years, mm. and people have often talked about them. What happened is that people didn't think they were the be all and end all, yeah. so they don't, they weren't always centre stage. And as you say, there is a slight element of little learning. So people will often say, you often hear now, you know, I wasn't taught this in schools. Mm. It's a disgrace that I wasn't taught this in schools. But I mean, there's lots of things you're not taught in schools. No one's stopping you from going and finding it out. Mm. And you're not, and maybe you're not being taught it in schools because kids are only doing 40 minutes of history a week. Mm. It's not because it's being deliberately suppressed. Mm. Um, the idea that there's only one story that should be told, and it has to be this story of, in Britain's case, of you know evil imperialists mm. and sort of you know saintly victims and martyrs, um, I just think it's it's just it's actually what I really dislike about it, Peter. Quite apart from the the politics of it, is that it's stupid. Mm. I think it's just a really stupid way mm. to think about the past. Mm. Of course, you know, let's say Churchill. Churchill was this incredibly interesting, rich character, mm. and because he was human, as in he was made from cut from the same you know cloth as anybody else he's flesh and blood as we are 
Uh, he wasn't perfect, you know, surprise, surprise. Now I read, you know, oh, we've just discovered that Churchill said some some off-colour things or he or, or he made mistakes or whatever, as though this is this great revelation. But of course, by definition, I mean, he was a human being. Mm. It doesn't diminish his greatness or it diminish his great qualities to say, you know, he wasn't this sort of divine demigod-like figure. Uh, and the same with Nelson and the same with all these kind of heroes of history. Of course they had feet of clay because they're human beings. I don't think it's actually terribly interesting to sort of focus in on the feet of clay to the exclusion of all else. I think what's interesting about them are the, the you know, the, are the things they got right as much as the things they got wrong. And I, I just worry that so much of our story is being reduced to this very, very... Um, sort of as i said kind of simplistic you know almost kind of it's sort of ladybird history but 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 actually that's, that's mean to ladybird history ladybird history was often much more nuanced than some of these sort of versions that you get now <laughs> yes. well i i grew up on them so uh, I'm, yeah. i mean do you do you uh, have anything do you speak at schools do you have anything to do with schools do you uh you do i mean what yeah is i your... do at, well my actually you know the funny thing is that i do t- speak at schools and and um I, I think sometimes people get the wrong idea, both about teachers and about students. So actually, a lot of teachers are not, um, are, 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 you know, completely dedicated, reasonable, interested, open-minded people. The idea that they're all kind of slaves to, to wokishness is actually not right. And that's true of students, too. Mm-hmm. The great trouble, the great, one of the great tragedies of the way we talk about higher education for example is that the only people that generally get quoted or paid attention to are that tiny minority mm. of kind of activists the, the people who bother to care about the student union mm. and of course the great majority of students are completely normal mm. so often i've gone to give talks um at universities and sometimes i'll go to, and i think is this the is this the moment you know when i get cancelled yeah. is this the moment when the students sort of a baying mob sort of drives me out um, into the gutter or something. And it never is, because the majority of students are just like students have always been. They're open-minded, reasonable, tolerant, mm. curious, intelligent people. And there's the, of course there's a, there's a small minority. Um, and the, 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 what's a shame is when you allow that tiny minority to dictate. So, for example, at Liverpool, the University of Liverpool has cancelled Gladstone. Uh, because he, you know, spoke up for his family's interests um, in the Caribbean, his slavering interests. Uh, the fact that Gladstone then went on to become, you know, this great progressive reformer of the Victorian era, I mean, that's completely forgotten. That's not good enough. And actually, the vast majority, I would think, of students and probably of staff at the University of Liverpool would never dream of cancelling Gladstone. But mm. it's so often the very noisy, strident, um, sort of over-enthusiastic, idealistic minority who get their way because other people have got better things to do than to than to fight the fight we we've we've got this actually this week most uh, recently with isaac newton uh who uh, is just they're lapping around you know lapping at the shores of, of isaac isaac yeah. newton but the point is though so i was uh, i you know i see what you mean about the numbers and you know there's a very vociferous uh, minority the it would appear that the punishment for possibly standing up for something uh, is just too great now for people. They they don't want to be cast out, and and there's a very strong yeah. chance if you if you say, for example, I think we should leave Cecil Rhodes alone or something, then wow, you're going to get it, aren't you? 
Yeah, I think you're right. So, for example, on the roads thing, um, I always said, and said many times in my columns in the Daily Mail, probably boring the readers into into a stupor, um, that roads should not come down. I don't believe any statues should come down, actually. Mm -hmm. I, I think if you're on the side of people who are toppling statues, that's a pretty bad place to be. Uh, but, of course, it's easy for me to say that because, you know, I'm a Daily Mail columnist, so that's kind of what people expect to some extent. Uh, but academics that I knew, I mean, I knew people, I know people at Oxford mm. who said to me they didn't think roads should fall, but they would never say so publicly. They yeah. were afraid to. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, people sometimes think, oh, this is probably exaggerated or this is all sensationalised and it's not really like this. But to give you an example, Peter, I have a, a good friend at Cambridge who was told he's not British um, he was told when he he was seen reading the Times uh, in the senior common room of his college, and somebody said to him, "Oh God, you're reading a kind of fascist newspaper." Um, that's a big, a big, a big statement. You know, to be reading the sports section in the Times at lunch, um, and he said, "You know, there are there are people who think that, and there is a kind of if you if you persist." in these views or or that sort of thing then you then then the uh, you you know you might not be driven out of the profession but people will just say oh he's the conservative one and you'll be stuck with this kind of label yeah, yeah. which means you might you know you might not get invited to things or people say oh i mean i can remember a, a case at oxford about 15 years ago when um uh they were inviting a visiting speaker from america a professor to come and speak and um, somebody said in the meeting to agree to invite him, they said, yeah, I agree, we should invite him. We should invite him. But um, he's actually a bit of a centrist. So I think we should have someone from the left for balance. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and, you know, that's, that's obviously how it works. And so what you end up with is, is the culture in institutions. I mean, universities are part of it, but also arts institutions and so on. Uh, where, I'd, frankly, I mean, I've said it in my column, you know, it, it can be a bit of a culture of appeasement. You know, people outside shout and scream and they can be. You're right. They, I mean, they're a small minority, but they can be very influential. They shout and scream and the university or the institution are like, oh, my God, we can't allow a Twitter storm. So we'll give in to them. And time and again, you see people giving in. And I just think they should have more of a flipping backbone. Yes. And sometimes they should say to, you know, students or to activists, OK, you've had your say. We don't agree with you you know the statue's going to stay up we're still going to teach x y and z or whatever it might be yeah. you know to just show a bit of spirit yes. rather than yes. sort of constantly abasing yourself before this sort of self-appointed little activist group who have a very kind of religious zeal actually don't they a very yeah with with your books uh, i mean I don't know whether you would you say you're, you're a Daily Mail columnist, whether you're perceived as a conservative historian or or, or what. But I mean, is there? I mean, what are, some of the conversations that I've uh, had with people on this program, um, they talk endlessly about the particular problem with publishing. I.e., that publishing now is very very left wing, and and I just wondered whether you know you don't have problems. Publish, getting your books published, presumably that's because they sell. Is is, is that the case? Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose they sell, but also um, the books, my history books, aren't dictated by a political agenda. No, I no. wouldn't say no. so. So, so people sometimes, you're right. People sometimes say, uh, "Oh, he writes for the Daily Mail, therefore his books yeah. must be a sort of conservative tirade." Um, 
but but I mean, as you know, as you know, if you've they're, they're actually probably much more boring than that. Um, and well, uh, they don't particularly uh, they they are actually very sort of matter of fact in the best sense. It seems to me. Um, but the, the one thing that I I have picked up with them, which I I, I I respond to very much, is that you tend to shed new light where where things have been portrayed as, for example, the sixties, hugely countercultural. This happening, that happened. You fill in the background. And say, well, actually, you know, life was going on very much the same. I remember there was one particular thing that stuck out in my mind in White Heat, which was that. We, you know, the 60s, you know, flower power, counter-revolution. The biggest selling album was the soundtrack to The Sound of Music, I believe. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so so you know, it goes against this kind of idea. You know. Yes, and I think there's a danger. So what you get with... Uh, historians probably, by and large, tend to be sort of left liberal people. And so they look, they look at history and they look for people like themselves. I mean, we all do that to some extent. Um, and from the start, I thought, you know, it's much more interesting to look at actually the, as much as possible at the great majority. You know, what were the most popular things? What were people doing? Were they going to orgies and all that sort of, you know, happenings and sit-ins? Or were they, garden, you know, mowing the lawn? And often the answer is they're mowing the lawn. And um, one thing I've tried to do throughout this that entire series is to sort of, you know, Obviously, there's lots about the great and the good, and there's also lots about the sort of more sort of eye-catching extremes. But always, you know, what are people doing in Northampton? Yeah. What are people doing in Worcester? Mm. You know, what's life actually like mm. for ordinary people? Mm. Um, I, you know, and actually, that's probably one reason why publishers do like them is because they they obviously strike a chord mm. um, among people who weren't necessarily, you know, the great and the good. They weren't on Carnaby Street in 1966, or they weren't, you know doing sort of sit-ins in the in the 70s or, or going on anti-Thatcher demonstrations in the 80s or at Greenham Common. I mean, those things are all in the books. Mm. And, you know, I, I try to sort of treat them properly. Mm. But to me, there's as much sort of drama and interest often in the life of somebody who's bought their first council house in 1982 or, you know, a young family starting mm. out on the sort of... Um, the, on the road together through kind of life and work in the 70s or something going on the first foreign holiday the first car yeah. all that sort of stuff yeah. i mean it's sort of finding you know mm. excitement and interest maybe excitement's quite a strong word but interest in the mundane details of life in, a, in an age that actually now seems in some ways like sort of ancient history i was actually going to make that very point it's, a, it's astonishing when i with who dares wins for example which is 1979 to 1982 um, well, I was, you know, just coming out of university. It does feel like a totally different world. And indeed, I think it, it was a different world, actually. But um, one thing that is, is in here, too, and I, I find fascinating, is during this short period of three years, there, there was, particularly in, after 1980, this kind of very odd sort of counter-revolution counter in culture. It, uh, you know, we can put them all together. Uh, you know, chariots of fire, the royal wedding, the uh, Falklands, the new romantics. It was like this sudden, and also a lot of Elgar around and Vaughan Williams and things like that. You know, it's extraordinary that, you know, you pick all of that up because you would have been, what, uh, in your teenage years then? No, not yet. I was, I'm, 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 a, I'm a, you know, a, a pygmy in years. Um, 
I was uh, not even ten. I was about eight or nine. Yeah. Why did you? So no. Go like, ahead. Sorry. Why did you? Why did you decide to write this sort of history then? Um, I think I was fascinated with the day before yesterday. Yeah. Um, the sort of period that my parents had grown up in, yeah. and and. Um, I suppose I started writing them as well at the, at the moment when that was dead, when that period was dead. So the, the, I started writing them at the point when the internet had arrived, when Britain yeah. was much more globalised, when the days of kind of orange juice as a starter yeah. um, belonged to history. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and uh, you know, the sort of British Leyland era, if you like. Yeah. And, I, and I just sort of thought, you know, it, it, I found it fascinating because it was, I couldn't, I could just remember it, but not quite. And I just mm. thought, you know, nobody else is doing this. And I just think, I, I just thought it was great. I just thought it was a great period. And I also thought the fun, the, the trick would be to, to weave together, yeah. you know, Margaret Thatcher and Harold Wilson with Paul McCartney and David Bowie yeah. and, you know, uh, the football and, and, yeah. and TV and all that sort of stuff. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, it was a, it is a, a vanished world, Peter. I think you're right. Mm. I think there's lots of things in it, um, you know, the holidays, the what people ate, the clothes and all that what sort of watched, thing. What they watched on what TV. they watched on TV. Mm. But you're right as well, actually. I, at that point, you make about there being a um, a cultural shift in the early eighties mm. is absolutely right. I think what actually happened was it was a the seventies been so grim mm. um, that there was just a yearning for escapism. Mm. And then, of course, I mean, people forget that you know. After 1979, at first, things got so much worse with the mm. massive unemployment and the rioting in the streets and so on. And the government seemed to have no, they sort of completely lost control of the economy. And, and all of that sort of bright head revisited, you know, people yeah. in cricket jumpers kind yeah. of Sloan ethos. Rangers. Yeah. Yeah, Sloan Rangers, exactly. I think a lot of that comes from this sort of desire. People had the desire for escapism and a desire for glamour and theatricality mm. and also patriotism, actually. Yeah, yeah. I think that's one yeah. of the biggest things that this period bequeathed mm. was it revived this sort of patriotic populism, if you like. Mm. It's what Mrs. Thatcher capitalised on in the Falklands. Yes. That basically, if you were 20 in 1980 all your life you just heard about the flag coming down in one way or another yeah. so the end of the british empire the loss of all these colonies but also just devaluation of the currency three-day week bailout from the imf winter of discontent you know this sort of sense of britain being a bit of a failed state and people there was this yearning you know and that's why when the falklands war happened even you know lots of die-hard labor voters who hated margaret thatcher said well i respect her yeah. for getting the task force to the South Atlantic, getting the islands back. She said what, I mean, there's a quote at the end of the book from a Birmingham shop steward, and he says, you know, um, I've never thought of voting Conservative before, but I am thinking about it now because of Maggie, because she said what she was going to do and she mm. did it. Mm. And and I think basically the previous 20 years, there's been an awful lot of saying what we were going to do and not doing yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's one of, I mean, that's probably what she'll be, apart from being the first woman prime minister, is that sort of, patriotic side to yes, her yeah. that I think it explains her place in our national imagination. I think so. I mean, at the, the 10 years, you know, the 79 to 89, 90, uh, there was a transformation. You felt, for example, if you were conservative, like I was at the time, you felt that you were on the winning side. That was it. But also there was a sort of sense that we weren't going to have managed decline anymore. You know, that, yeah. that, was, that was the big thing. Um, 
Dominic, when is the next one coming out and, and what period will it cover? Are you allowed to tell us that? Or you I am, yeah. No, <laughs> uh, the next one will be not for a few years um, because of something that I'll just tell you in a sec. Um, and the next one will be really, the hinge of the next one will be the minor strike. Right. So it'll be going into the sort of middle of the 80s. So you've obviously got the big bang coming in the city and so on. But the minor strike is the sort of big confrontation yeah. that gives it, you know, its flavour. Mm. And the reason it's going to be a few years is because I've just spent the last year starting a new series of history books for children oh, right. um, uh, uh, called Adventures in Time. And they're sort of, you know, non-fiction narrative history, yeah. but for sort of nine, 10, 11 year olds, uh, because my son is nine and right. I was trying to find something for him. Uh, he was doing evacuee, evacuees at school was his topic. And he said he wanted to read a book about the Second World War and I couldn't quite find the right thing. And I said to my editors at Penguin, you know, it's weird how no one's done this, how Max Hastings hasn't done a kind of kid's version. Yes. And, um, could you know, why don't I do it? Um, so fantastic. I have started doing it. Um, I grew, so, yeah. I grew up um, at school on, on R.J. Unstead. Do you remember him? Everybody, yeah. Everybody who <laughs> says they like R.J. Unstead. And so, they are like, I loved R.J. Unstead, right, exactly. Right. Well, so you, you've... There's one on the Second World War. Are these books out now? Sorry, Dominic. Are they, no, are they no, they, they, no, they're coming out. Um, the first couple are coming out in the summer, and then there's two more coming out in the autumn, and then hopefully some more in a, in a year or two. So they're called Adventures in Time, and the first two are, um, perhaps not unpredictably, the Second World War and the Six Wives of Henry VIII. Right. And then in the autumn, there's the First World War and Alexander the Great, and then some more to follow thereafter. Oh, fantastic. Oh, that's very, that's great to hear. Uh, you know, it's wonderful. Um, and so, and then in the fullness of time, there'll be the minor strike. Uh, and then you've got your whole Blair period, haven't you? Can I just ask, because people often ask these sort of things when they, when they put comments down. On, how, you know, these are huge volumes. I mean, how long does it take you to, to write one of these? Um... Well, I'm doing other things, so it slightly depends on... Yes. Uh, it's very hard to, to, to answer because I'm always sort of juggling. But I, it takes a few years, you know. Yeah. It probably takes um, four years, maybe, yeah, yeah. I guess. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of... Um, I do all the research first, yeah, and then I write it up. I mean, doing the research has become... A, it's become both easier and harder because of the internet. Yeah. So in in that book who dares wins um all the thatcher stuff so all her papers are online they've been digitized by the yeah. thatcher foundation it's an amazing website yeah. sort of margaret thatcher foundation website and that's both a blessing and a curse it's a blessing because you can look up everything straight and get it straight away but it's a curse because all the stuff is there so there's almost no excuse not to go through it all yeah. so i probably spent about 18 months just sort of scrolling through endless pdfs of yeah. sort of margaret thatcher's paperwork um, and I couldn't quite tell where my life ended and hers began, as it were. So probably like how Charles Moore feels. Um, so, yeah. Well, look, Dominic, I mean, thank you so much for, for, for joining us today. It's, it's been fantastic, really has. I mean, I can't recommend these books enough. They don't need my recommendation because they've, many people, are, I mean, the, the critics praise them to the skies. But anyway, uh, latest one, Who Dares Wins, um, in paperback. Uh, Excellent stuff. Um, and we will look out as well for the Adventures in Time, uh, which should, uh, I think is, you're, you are performing a public service with do, by doing that, actually, uh, because particularly for kids now. Um, Dominic, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a great it's, pleasure. Uh, it's lovely. Thank you so much.
Uh, that's it for So What You're Saying is this week. And we shall see you next time. But in the meantime, please do subscribe, will you? Thanks so much. Bye-bye.